0: We want to hear some of those words of power, some of those eternal truths, even now. And to do so, turn in this, the word of God, to the book of Deuteronomy. Newcomers, that's really near the beginning of the Bible, really near the beginning. Deuteronomy chapter five, two places where God gives his ten commandments. And this is the second Deuteronomy chapter five. I have just enjoyed so much the music of the Gettys. In some ways, I'm jealous. You know, when you have that Irish Ohio accent, it just always sounds more profound. Uh, But but their music has been just about my favorite music that's being written in our day. And it's just such a blessing for me to have them here. I hope you'll be back. You know, their music cuts across uh, ages and ethnicities. And I just think it's a good place to invite people in at four o'clock today. It would be a real blessing. Well, Deuteronomy chapter five. Let us stand because we are going to be remembering. But this indeed is our father's word, beginning with verse one, Moses summoned all Israel and said "Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today, learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord, our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain at the end of that verse. And he said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then over in verse twenty nine. Oh, that their hearts. Would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and with their children forever. Verse 32. So. Be careful. To do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that. You may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land you will possess. Let's remember that this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I'm wondering, do do any of you remember these? All right. Rubik's cubes. They're coming back again. Younger people, you can go into YouTube. It's one of the most watched videos right now. How to solve this. I'll tell you, they came out in the early 80s. I'll get one that, that has it the way it's supposed to be. You know, all the colors with, on each side are supposed to be, as you see it, it's a game. And what you do is you would get it mixed up just a bit and give it to someone and see how long it takes that other person to get it back right again, to get the order the way it's supposed to be. Now, I was among those who became obsessed with these things and never was able to solve it. They just <laughs> drove me to the brink. Of insanity, I think, and maybe some of you would say maybe went too far. I, I'm not not quite sure. But, you know, the first time that I got one was in one of the busiest times of my life. Uh, I was a doctoral student. Uh, I was a brand new father uh, and I was a pastor. And here I was sitting in my office trying to do a Rubik's Cube rather than all these other things that I that I should have done when there was an 11 year old guy in our church, Mike, now, who came by. Um, Mike was always in trouble. Mike was a terrible student, and yet somehow he and I had gotten kind of connected. You know how that sometimes happens? We, we we really connected with one another. And he would stop by and see me. And he peeked his head in one day and he said, oh, Pastor Greg, I see you have a Rubik's Cube. And he walked in he said, would would you mind if I tried to do it? Oh, I said, "Oh, Mike, it's hard, but, but sure. And I flipped it over to him. And you know what happened. I'll tell you. It was under two minutes. It felt like it was less than a minute. That he had that whip, 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 whip. He had it all completely done. I was shocked. I said, Mike, how did you do that? And he said, "Ah, oh, it's easy if you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he added, and as he walked out the door, flipped it back to me, if you have the book. Wait a minute, I said. <laughs> Wait a minute. What do you mean the book? Don't you know, the company that made uh, these has also put out a book, instructions for how to get it right. And no matter how messed up it is, if you'll simply follow those instructions, you'll be able to get it aligned again, back to the way that it's supposed to be. I remember saying something like this to him. Well, I'd rather figure it out myself. (laughs) But he looked at me with one of those looks. Oh, sure you would. Sure you would. And I knew he was right and that I wasn't. As as we begin this series today on the Ten Commandments, it is this Rubik's Cube that came to my mind. And I'll tell you why. Because I feel like a a Rubik's Cube is so much like our lives. Um, There is a way that we've been made, Christians believe this, to live, a way of order, a way that's beautiful. And yet we've made decisions that have gotten it, and I'll pull the other one out, out of alignment, out of alignment. And sometimes we try to figure out how can I how can I make it right again so that you show up at church on a Sunday morning and you you just know that there are some areas of your life that are not in order. Right. And so sometimes we try on our own initiative to find ways to set it straight. But what we find out is that often the very moves, the very decisions that we make that we think will straighten it out, only mess it out more so that maybe we get some of the colors on one side, but when we turn it around. It is more out of order than it ever was. In fact, if you've looked at people like the life of David in the Old Testament, when he made that terrible decision to commit adultery with Bathsheba, he tried to do all sorts of things to get life back into order. Deceiving people, trying to fool, eventually leading even to the murder of a person. What he needed to do was find someone else who could help him make his life right And to begin to live again. Now today I want to tell you one of the most beautiful things that I have to proclaim. Is that the maker of our lives has put out a book. In it, he's made himself known to us. In it, he will tell you as you come to this place, and I'll tell you every time you come, God loves you. In it, he will tell you that there is a way that he has created us to live and to live well. Of course, in our day, a lot of people don't want to believe that. You know that's true, don't you? There are some people who, like me with the Rubik's Cube, says, well, why don't I just figure it out myself? I'll figure it out myself. That group has been called by philosophers the rationalists. Others say, you know what I'll do? Instead of me turning to God, I'll just do by hit and miss. I won't try to figure it out. I'll just kind of try it and see what works and what doesn't. They're called the pragmatists. And then there's a whole group now that says that there never was an order, a way that God would have us to live. So then we can just kind of experience things as we want because the world's absurd anyway. Yahoo. They're called the existentialists. Together, these three groups form main groups who try to live life well without reference to God. But let me tell you. I think eventually they will find out, as I did with this, that we cannot do it. And I'll tell you, it's, it's much more at stake than simply playing a game, isn't it? You know, when I was playing a game and trying to get that, it cost me some of my uh, good temper, <laughs> some of my patience, and a whole lot of my time. But when it comes to our lives, the cost is too high. It's too painful. Because eventually it may cost us our eternal souls. And our eternal destinies. Uh, I I am now a pastor because I believe that God has created a way that he would have you to live. And if you will come to know him and if you and I will always come into this place, put him back in the first place in our lives, that our lives will be the way they were created to be lived, that that God made us and then told us how to live, not to ruin us, but so that our lives would be the lives that, that really are filled with joy. And that are in alignment. In fact, one of the verses I read to you earlier, and I don't know if you noticed it, is down there in chapter 5, verse 29. I think we have it here. Oh, God says that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and then keep all of my commands always. Why? So that it may go well with them and with their children forever. Now, I'm going to turn this thing on end, because so many people, when they think about commands, ten commands in the Bible, they think all of these are these rules that are like straitjackets. And I tell you, no, they aren't. Uh, He set his people free from slavery and then says, here is how you can really live. Uh, God doesn't give commands so that he would ruin our lives. And for us, those of us who are Christians, you must know that Jesus gave his life to forgive us of those things where we've gone astray. And he gives a spirit to us to empower us to be different. Jesus didn't give his life to ruin yours. Just mark it down. Jesus did not give his life on that cross to ruin yours. But he gave his life so that you may live. And when you ask, how then can I live as God would have me to live? He boils it all down. And gives it to us in two places in scripture, Exodus chapter 20, or the text I want you to stay at today, Deuteronomy chapter five. Now, as you turn to that and keep your Bible open to that text, I know that there are many people who say, well, that's Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you have all these commands for how you live. But Jesus overturned that, that when Jesus was asked, what are the two great commands? What did he say? The greatest is love the Lord your God with all of your being. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so some people say God no longer expects us to follow his commands and and to live the way he's told us to live. He just wants us to love. Well, let me tell you this. What Jesus was referring to in those two statements is love the Lord your God with all of your being is referring back to the first half. Of The Ten Commandments, which tell us how to love God. And when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is referring to the second part of the Ten Commandments, how you and I actually show love to one another on this human plane. And that's what we're going to think about how to live well, according to the maker's instructions. Now, today we just begin. And I want to ask three questions. And the first one is one that I think that if I would preached this sermon 20 or 30 years ago, I never would have asked it because everybody would have already agreed. But the world has changed since then. So here's the first question. Maybe some of you think that's just way too simple. But others will say, no, no, no. That we have to address that when we go to church. What is it that makes one decision right and another decision wrong? What, what is it? That makes one thing good and another thing evil. And the Bible teaches us this. This is the biblical worldview. It comes from this verse four of Deuteronomy five. The Lord spoke to you out of the fire on the mountain. And he said, this is how you should live. What is it that makes one thing right and another thing wrong? According to the Bible, there is a God. There is a God. He is and he is good and all-powerful he's the maker of everything on heaven and on earth and he's made you he's made you in his image and as he made you in his image he's made you and me to live in a certain way and when we live that way we live well and when we don't our lives fall apart Uh, some of you when you buy buy a uh, car here in California you get a free tank of gas We, we still get that don't we, when you buy a new car the gas costs sometimes as much as the car. Okay, so you drive you drive home and after a while you don't have any gas left. And then you look at the stations here in California. Look at that. It's almost $4 for a gallon of gas. And you could say, I know that this owner's manual tells me I'm supposed to put gasoline in this thing. But I tell you, I can do it the way I want. Uh, it's too expensive. I'm going to put water in mine and it better run. Now, it's a silly illustration in one way, but it isn't so much, is it? What's going to happen to your car? Yeah, It's not going to run. In the same way, God has made us in his image. And though you and I have walked away from him, he has found a way to forgive us of our sins, to set us right, to get us back in alignment again, and tells us, now this is how you should live. Now, I'm thinking about this. Aren't aren't there many things that affect our decision making? Even today well let 's go to the eleven o 'clock service today rather than the nine that 's the one we usually go to, so sometimes habit habit is, affects our decision right sometimes it 's just random walking down the aisle you say oh here 's a free spot let 's sit here rather than over there so sometimes it 's expediency the, the thing that you might Think would lead to some more success. Oh, I think. Go John to Azusa Pacific. I think I'll study uh, business rather than Sanskrit. I've heard there might be more jobs there. (laughs) See, there are all sorts of things that affect our decision making, aren't there? But sometimes. Now you're with me. Sometimes when we have a decision before us. We think on one side. This is what I usually do. Or this is what would be easiest to do. Or well, this is something that would be make me more successful. But I know I ought to do that. Ought. Don't you think that is a strange and strong word? You know what it implies, don't you? It implies that there is some standard outside of ourselves. That though I may want to do this... Deep inside of my being, I know that there is an oughtness, something better about doing this. I may get angry and want to do harm to somebody else, but I know I ought to do that. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things that has hit me over the many, many years of talking about this is that both Christians and non-Christians alike use that word. Often even debate in debates about whether there is a moral law, whether there is a way that God has said we should live and people are denying it. They'll use the word ought or at least imply it saying something like this. You ought to believe what I believe. You ought to be more tolerant than you are. And I always want to just push back and say, but why ought I? What makes that better than something else? And the Bible says it is a good God who has created this world and made us in his image and told us this is how you live well. Now, the reason why I have to put that question In when I talked with the 21st century audience in in Southern California is, you know, that even though in earlier days, everyone believed that there was an absolute right and wrong. Nowadays, that's under attack. Do you know that that's true, especially in the so-called postmodern world? There should be no authorities that speak down to us. Instead, we can determine subjectively from ourselves what is right and wrong. And there are two things that are said. Number one, some people say that there that. Um. There is no such thing as a moral law. Uh, That there is no such thing as a moral absolute. In fact, that is a post a part of postmodern thinking. And I went back to a book I read in college back in the 70s by Professor J.L. Mackay, sort of the father or grandfather of postmodern thought in his book, Ethics. Listen to the subtitle, Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. Ethics inventing right and wrong. And here is the opening line in the book. There are no moral absolutes. Well, back then when he wrote it, very few people agreed with him. Now it seems to sort of be the wave of the way almost everyone thinks. Now, for those of you here who may still be students in high school or college or for the parents of those or grandparents of those. If you go through many of the schools in our day from one class to another, this will underlie everything. That there are no absolute rights or wrongs. So I'll I'll just walk through you a a, a couple of classes. You go into a physical science class and the professor will say, you know, we human beings are just chemical machines. We, We just sort of respond to the chemicals in the environment around us so that really there are no moral laws, just physical laws. So the student goes out of physical science and goes into biology class. Yes, yes, says the biologist. All human behavior can be interpreted in terms of animal instincts. That's just what we are, just advanced animals. Things like aggression and territorial defense. So the student goes out of that class, and goes into anthropology class. Oh, they're both right, says the anthropologist, because all of our moral values, uh, when when you have a sense of conscience that, that, that something is wrong, that's just something that you've learned from the society that you've grown up in. Now, those of you who go to the Lake Avenue Church, it's because you've had to sit under that preacher for so long. That's why you think certain things are right and certain things are wrong. But if you would grown up in a different place uh, with Melanesian frog worshippers or, or, you know, something like that, then you would feel altogether differently about it. There are no absolutes. I could go on and on, but I'm telling you, with so many people giving that sort of God less worldview you can see why it is that all around us in our society people are questioning the existence of a god and trying to figure out why certain things that happen are wrong why should this wonderful swat los angeles police officer be killed doing what is right what makes it wrong to shoot someone like that? Why is it wrong to abuse children? Somehow we know from, from what God has built within us that there are certain things that are wrong and yet there's no basis for it. And the Bible says that God has created life to be lived well in this way. And I tell you, if you don't have a God who does, you have no moral authority to direct your lives. So first of all, there's so many people who simply say such a thing doesn't exist. And then second... There are some people who say that even if there's a way that God would have us to live, His way is not good. I see. I keep taking you back into my youth. Do any of you remember that old Luther Ingram R and B song? Every time I hear it, I almost start singing it. Uh, if loving you is wrong, I don't. Am I the only one who's heard it? If loving you is wrong, I don't. I don't want to be right. Do you see what's implied in that? That, okay, I'm supposed to be faithful to my spouse and, and she is too, but I'm telling you, I'm, if I'm going to really live and enjoy life, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. In other words, if there is an absolute moral right or wrong about this, it's not good for us. Our lives will be ruined. And this is simply a part of the way so many people think. I'll tell you, you watch the films of our day, you read the books of our day, and what I've seen is you have to be a little bit of a a rogue in our day to be a hero anymore. We don't want anybody who's too pure, too good. I mean, where in our day, on television or in the media, do you see somebody made into a hero like Andy Griffiths or or Mr. Rogers? Who would want to be like that? (laughs) Who would want to be like that anymore? What permeates our society is sort of that Hugh Hefner philosophy that we are free to do whatever we want. And if you tell me that I shouldn't do this, you're the one who's going to be inhibited, not me. It's your fault. Let me try something on you. There was a Columbia professor back a number of years ago who saw that moral values of the students he was teaching were changing. And he went into his class one day. Went up and started writing on the projector just certain words. I'm going to put them up here and just see what you think as you see them goodness, kindness, purity, chastity, virtue, integrity, faithfulness. He went on for a while. I think as all of us know, these are the kind of qualities and values that the Bible say these are good. These are the way we're meant to live. And actually, much of the world embraced them up until recent days. But do you know what happened in his class? By the time he got to the third or the fourth words, especially these words purity and chastity, he had his back to his students. When he got to those words, he started hearing snickering behind him. He found out everybody was very, very uncomfortable. And by the time he got to the end of his lists, they were laughing and they were talking with one another and paying no attention. And he said, stop. Why is this happening? And one of the young men said, well, we didn't think you could possibly be serious by putting those up. And one of the young women, I think, really got, got the, the essence of it. She said, I just want to tell you, when we saw those words, I felt so uncomfortable I felt so uncomfortable because these things that are good are not the values that we find embedded in our society and many people feel that what God has said is good in the way that you're supposed to live the rest of the world is saying not for me I want to throw off those straitjackets." jackets what does the Bible say look at chapter 5 verse 22 These are the commands that the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to the whole assembly on the mountain from out of the fire. And he added nothing more. That the commands that we find in this word are commands given by God and what God tells you. And I I just wonder if if, if you can believe it, that when God tells us, I've given these not to ruin your life, but that so, so that you may live well. Do you believe him? As you come here this morning, I just I believe that when I talk about things like this, sometimes we've made all these decisions and tried to do things. And we come to church knowing that our life isn't quite the way it should be, that every one of us can relate to that. And that when we say, I want my life to be more than it is, how do I start? Then the hard part is to convince you that it's God's way, that what you need to do is come to know him and put him in his rightful place. So that's the first question. What makes things right and wrong, good or bad? How would I ever know how I'm supposed to live? And I want to tell you that God is and he has spoken. Which brings me to the second question, which I'll look at just briefly. And that is, OK, if God has made it to live in a certain way, what would ever motivate people like you and me to live his way rather than my own? If there is a moral law and God has spoken, what would make a rather self-centered, self-directed person... Say, OK, my life is yours. Uh, I'll follow you. I guess one answer would be, well, if God said it, I'll have to stand before him. He'll crush me. If I don't, I'd better do it or else. <laughs> but do you know that that is not the main motivation you ever find in the Bible? It is found in this wonderful verse, a verse that I found in the Ten Commandments that many people just skipped. Chapter five Verse six. I am the Lord, your God. Who am I? I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you from slavery. And I didn't rescue you from slavery to make you live poorly. I made it so you can live well. I've rescued you. I've saved you. Now thou shalt. This is how you were meant to live. So uh, if you're newcomers to church, uh, you, you may not believe this, but this is one of the thorniest issues in the entire Bible. Uh, those who are longtime church goers and theologians, and there are a lot of them here at Lake Avenue Church. You know, this relationship of our faith to works has often confused and, and divided Christians. Uh, there are some who say, "Okay, here's what you should do. Yes, you should believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep all these commands. Check, 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 and then you'll sort of earn your way or help God out so that you can be saved." Now, what does the Bible say about that? Absolutely not. It is by grace (laughs) we've been been saved through faith in what he has done. It's not of works in case any one of us should boast. That's not the way it is. So that others say, "Okay, then I don't earn my own way at all. Then what I should do is simply believe in him and then live as I want. Uh, He doesn't care how I live. Well, I want you to see that even though the Bible says it's not our works that save us, the way that the Bible puts it is this. That when we are grateful for what God has done, when we see ourselves as we are and we've experienced the mercy of God, we become such grateful people that we will do whatever he asks us to do. I've talked about this before. I will talk about it again and again. It's one of the things that sets our Christian faith apart from other religions. The Christian faith is one of response to what God has done. In spite of the fact that you and I have walked away and gotten our lives all out of kilter. God loves you anyway. Do you know that? God loves you anyway. And he wants to forgive you of your sins. And he wants to remake you. And the way to get this faith and works things together is get the order right. You begin to recognize through the work of God in your life that things are not the way they should be. You hear this message from your pastor. Yes, God loves you anyway and is ready to forgive you. You say, I can't believe it. You bring your sins to him and trust him. What does he do? He throws them as far as east is from the west. Uh, Those of you who have experienced it, isn't it the most joyous thing imaginable? You say, hallelujah, (laughs) thank you. I can't believe this can happen. And he says, I'll give my spirit to you. Now you ask, Father. I messed myself up. How would you have me to live? And he says, this is how I've made you to live. The only thing that is going to motivate you and me as self-directed people to live for him. Is gratitude for what he's done. If you come and you know that there are areas of your life that you can't believe can be forgiven. There's hope for you. <laughs> there's hope for you. If you look around you and you say, oh, I don't think I'm as bad as these other people here. Just look at them. Oh, I don't know how much hope I can give. To those of us who fall upon the grace of God in faith, it is that gratitude that will motivate us to live for God. We want to please him. Which brings me to the third question. If you've come here this morning, and you say, I want my life to be brought back into order. I know it hasn't been. There are areas that are simply wrong. Where do I start? Where do I start? What is the first step? And here's what God says You shall have no other gods before me. Let God be God. Um, the word before me in Hebrew is really no other gods to my face. Isn't that a powerful illustration? Uh, no other things in this world. That that are put on the same level as I am. I am first. Everything else must come underneath that. I know that some people say we don't have gods in 21st century Western world. But you know that's not true, don't you? There are so many things we put to the face of God. Anything we put in his place becomes the God, the Lord of our lives. Now, I have so little time and I'm coming back to this next week. But let me just give you two propositions. Ready? Number one. The only thing that's going to make it possible for you to live well is if you put God in his rightful place in your life. When God is first, everything else can take its right place and find its alignment. When you take one of those other things and put them in God's place, things start to fall apart. And I always see that the beginning point for our lives getting out of alignment is shoving God out of his place as being God in our lives. Uh, You know, I used to pastor up the coast uh, in a a beautiful area, Arroyo Grande. And I had a Bible study for two and a half years with 12 physicians and and a, a, a surgeon, a good friend of mine, would pick me up in Arroyo Grande and we would drive to San Luis Obispo. Now, he had five beautiful teenage daughters. Any of you with teenagers, can you imagine this? Five beautiful blonde teenage daughters. And one of them at least, usually more, was always in trouble. So when I would hop in his car, I'd say, who are we going to talk about this week? <laughs> and so he would just tell the story all, all the way there and all the way back. And at the end, he would always say, I won't give you his name, but at the end, he would always say, you know, bottom line, it's a spiritual problem. She needs to put God first in her life. I bet that statement drove his kids nuts, don't you? Bottom line, when you're in trouble, it's a spiritual problem. And what you must do is put God first in your life. I tell you, it's true. This is where it starts. George MacDonald, one of my favorite authors, a Scottish author of the 19th century, wrote this phrase. I want you to perhaps even write it down because I think it's so profound. Whenever first things... Are put first. Second things. Are not diminished. But enhanced. What do you think of that? When first things. Are put first. Those second things. Are not diminished. They are enhanced. I use that line almost every time I do a wedding. (laughs) You put your spouse. In the place of God. That spouse is going to let you down. But put God first. And that spouse can be what he or she was made to be. doesn't have to be God. When first things are put first, second things are not diminished but enhanced. The only way to live well is to make sure that God is in His rightful place. That's where it starts. And then my second proposition is this. Whatever controls you is your God. So that it's only when God is the one who controls us That we can be free, that we can live. Becky Pippert, who wrote this wonderful book out of the salt shaker into the world, listen to her words. Whatever controls us is our Lord, she wrote, so that the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The the one who simply wants that higher position will do anything to get it, even abuse those under their authority. That has become that person's Lord or this one. She added the person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. Because at the end of the day, we do not control ourselves. We are going to be controlled by that Lord of our lives. Well, what kinds of things could come into your life? A J.I. Packer suggested that just as we have God who is a Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That there are trinities of other kinds of gods that often try to take his place. You want to look at him? Think about this with regard to your life sex, shekels, stomach, or pleasure, position, possessions, or football. The firm. The family. Now you're listening to me here, aren't you? All those things are good things. If they're in the rightful place. But all those things can be put to the face of God. And what happens is when some of those things are put in God's place, they'll let you down. Even those closest to you. And others of those things, when they're put in the place of God, will become an addiction in your life. Particularly this matter of pleasure. It's it's so easy to grab hold of and it's it's so present in our lives. But once we've had that pleasure for a while, it's not enough, is it? And we have to have more and more and more. When that becomes our God, it will take us over. And what happens when we see that those things have been put to the face of God, we need to come into church and say, Father, I acknowledge it. I know that you alone are God. I take this moment to re-surrender to you. And put you in your rightful place. That's where it starts. So that our lives again can be beautiful. Can you think of any examples of, of, of beautiful lives? People that you know have God in his rightful place. We had one this past week in our area. Did any of you finish, uh, follow the funeral service for Randall Simmons? The Los Angeles police officer? SWAT officer who lived well. Can you believe that this man, whom nobody knew anything about, had thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to his service? I went onto the uh, LA Times website this morning and was looking at what people wrote, and this line touched me deeply. Of note, it said, it is of note that this dedicated man's first dedication was to God. It is of note that this dedicated man's first dedication was to God. So that Officer Simmons was also a minister and with God at the center of his life, lived a beautiful life that touched his family, that touched his community, and now is pointing people to the difference that Christ can make when we let God be God. This is where we start. God has given us his word so that we can know him. And so that it may go well with us. But where I would urge you to start. Is to ask. Who or what is the God of your life. And if the God of the universe. Is one to whom you recommit yourself. More and more you will find. That this out of order Rubik's Cube. Becomes something of beauty. To his glory. Amen. Amen. I want to lead us in a few moments of prayer as we bring our service to a close. I put this on the worship folder so that you can take it home and think about it. But in these moments, as we're getting ready to close our service, I want you to think about your life and let the word of God and spirit of God Open your eyes to the things that have taken God's place in your life. And the question I want to ask is, what causes, what passions, what relationships, what goals or practices have become more important or absorbing to you than God himself? And a couple of questions that may help you to think about it. Uh, To what does your mind turn when, when you have a moment to dream about things? What is the main affection of your heart? Second, who are you trying to impress by the way that you live, by the activities that you do? Just yourself, but usually it's somebody else who then has taken God's place. Or third, maybe this. What are you living for? What is the main direction, the main objective of your life, the main longing for what you might become? And then ultimately, who or what controls your life? Is there anything in the face of God? Is there anything that you think, yes, I want to believe in Jesus, but he can't take that away? That's something I must have, no matter what he says. Will you take just a few moments and in the silence, give that back to him. And then I will lead us in prayer. Father, in this uncomfortable silence, open our eyes and our hearts to see those other things that have come into your place. Sometimes they are sins, sometimes they are good things. But Father, we have heard your word, that you've made us in this way, that when we put you first, then and only then can life be beautiful Father, for some of us who have taken time so many times in services like this to bring things to you, we do it again. And thank you, Father, that your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness are sufficient for our sins. For Those who bring matters to you this morning, assure them, Father, that the blood of Christ is enough and that your power through your spirit can remake them. Give them hope again. And then, Father, there may be some here at this 11 o'clock service who have never had a personal relationship with you, who don't know you as their father, and have heard this message, and know somehow that this is true. May this be the day that they bring their sins to you, and give them to you, and bring their lives to you, and trust Jesus to rescue them. Do your work in our lives, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.